This is fine. Episode 1.1. What the fuck? This is not fine. This is Jeremy Reff. And I'm Jerry Vinokurov. And today we're going to be doing a little bit of election postmortem, a discussion of a few articles relevant to our political moment, and then we're having our first reader question. So Jerry, what the fuck happened? Wow. Uh, I don't know how exactly to process that. I'm still sort of in shock. Uh, I believe the technical answer is that we are going to be inaugurating President Donald Trump on January 21st. Donald J. Trump. John, Donald J. Trump, yes. I am baffled because this happened in contravention to sort of all known conventional wisdom, but not just conventional wisdom, but also the polls, which turned out to be vastly underestimating his appeal in the Rust Belt states, which uh, gave him the election. So, And I'd note even the internal polls. In 2012, famously, the Romney people were shocked by their loss to President Barack Obama. In 2016, the Trump people, while they correctly predicted the path they might win on, actually had a lower chance on the day of the election in their own models than 538 did for a Donald J. Trump win. That's right. I mean, they themselves didn't actually think that they were going to win with good reason, because there was no data indicating that they were going to do so. And one of the things that sort of, I guess, just to start like into the discussion, one of the things that uh, has kind of bothered me about a lot of the post-election breakdowns is that people are like, oh, like now all the models are broken and nobody knows anything. And, you know, we're just living in this postmodern chaos where nothing has any meaning. Epistemic uh, hell. Right. Epistemic hell. That's right. Um, that doesn't seem to be quite accurate because when you actually look at kind of the margins of error, you're like, eh, it's, you know, we, we hit like roughly where we thought we were going to hit. It's just that a couple of coin tosses essentially came up all heads when you would expect them to come up equally heads and tails. Well, maybe we could distinguish actually from state polling and national polling, because I think right. that's definitely right on the national level. In fact, nationally, as Hillary Clinton's popular vote climbs, it looks like it will be inside of the average national error. Mm -hmm. um, but I think on some of the state polling, and in particular polling of rural areas, this turns out not to be right, right? There are misses in the Rust Belt of something north of six points, maybe the average miss. I'm not, you know, Nate Cohn, so that's that, that probably seems wrong. about right. And I think in terms of the rural counties, like I believe in the Panhandle, for example, Trump pulled out 10% more votes than Romney did. And actually, that was a strong 2012 uh, Romney turnout in the Panhandle of Florida. Right. So there's definitely a geographical aspect to the way that these uh, these polls were systematically wrong, right? So they really underestimated Trump's appeal in the um, in the much more rural counties, and possibly I don't know if this has to do with maybe they didn't sample the rural counties enough, but um, voter non-response, voter non-response is another definite possibility. But whatever the mechanism for it happening, it happened, and here we are. We are living living the nightmare. So. So a big thing that's come out since the election is this idea that it was a turnout problem for Hillary Clinton. And, and that's actually in terms of postmortem. Um, and I apologize to the listeners who are sick of, of this and in particular probably sick of a, a self-serving defense of Hillary Clinton. <laughs> but I, I do think it's fair to note that actually Hillary uh, turned out... Um, it may come close to the 2012 Barack Obama numbers on the popular vote almost exactly. And frankly, in majority African-American counties had very similar margins as right. Barack Obama, maybe a 10,000 vote difference in Philadelphia and did better in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Wisconsin and Michigan seem clearly possibly the two states that could have swung by turnout. But after that, it's very hard to see a state where turnout matters. You know, I, I think, for example, in Pennsylvania, Yes, Democrats maybe had 100,000 fewer votes than in 2012, but Republicans had 250,000 more votes than in 2012. And I, I just don't see that as being plausibly turnout, especially because some of those are probably voters who are switching. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a good question, actually, right? We don't know kind of the identity of all the voters that sort of delivered those three states to Trump. There's, there's a plausible mechanism. One plausible mechanism is that there are voters who were used to be Obama voters and they switched. They could could have been non-voters. Uh, some of them were probably non-voters who showed up. Um, and then there's also the question of were there non-voters that could have shown up for Democrats who did not show up, right? So those are kind of like three different effects that combine to produce this situation. Do you think given the uncertainty, because I guess one of the reasons I wanted to push back on this is it feels like there's been this call 
among uh, coastal elites in the media um, that we need to focus on a particular class of voters, the the white working class. And without these voters, uh, Democrats are lost. So this is an uh, interesting question. Uh, before I try to answer it, one of the things I'm going to do is like I'm going to reference this plot that I made that looks at turnout difference uh, between 2012 and, and 2016. And one of the things that sort of comes up on this plot is that definitely there was a smaller turnout in Wisconsin. We've already talked about that. A lot of the West actually saw a much lower turnout. So in particular, like rural areas of Washington, most of California actually saw a rural turnout, which would have added to Clinton's popular vote total, but probably, you know, would obviously not have changed the outcome of the election. But if you look at the eastern half of the United States, what you actually see is that it's, um, you know, there's a there's slight fluctuations there it's a few percent in either direction around essentially the 2012 mean so there there's places where uh it's a little bit higher like the what's the part of florida that's not the panhandle what do they call that um the part of Florida that's just insane, but not awful <laughs> so the part of Florida that is not the panhandle which is the Florida Peninsula, perhaps we can call it. I don't know. That part is, you know, had slightly higher turnout overall, it looks like. Uh, Pennsylvania had a higher turnout. Um, You know, parts of the Southeast, definitely that uh, there's, you know, that sort of black belt that runs across the Southeast that turned out pretty strongly for Barack Obama in 2012. and, And prior to that, that turnout looks like it was lower. Right. Um, Mississippi's one of the few states that's going to have a significant decline in turnout that was not at all a swing state, right? Right, right. But for example, like it's interesting, you know, turnout in a lot of parts of Texas was higher and Texas was actually closer than Democrats have gotten in the past. Uh, I, tur- I believe Texas was closer than Iowa in the end. Yeah. Arizona was also weird with like suppressed turnout in a lot of places relative to 2012, but also like, again, much closer than Democrats have gotten in Arizona uh, in the past. So that's kind of odd. I don't know what's what exactly is going on there. I haven't really looked at that data in like a, a very granular level. But it seems that overall, like for the parts of the country that matter, there was some slight downturn in turnout, but it wasn't like huge. Right. Right. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm just looking at Dave Wasserman's data again it's very easy to make the case, I think, in, in Wisconsin and Michigan, um, that turnout was what did in Democrats, but it's very hard for me to find another state where that's the case. And that's the case even where, you know, in North Carolina, a state with active voter suppression, you still had an increase in Democratic votes, I believe, since 2012. And even the black turnout was down, importantly. Across most of the other states, there may be slight dips in Democratic turnout, but it's hard to know whether those are swing voters to Republicans because Republican turnout did increase in all the states. Right. You know, your county by county analysis may actually point to we could probably do more work there. But mm-hmm. but it's very clear, for example, Luzerne County in Pennsylvania, um, which is where uh, Wilkes Bar is or Wilkes Bear, Wilkes Barry. Uh, I think it's Wilkes Bar. I believe. All right. Luzerne County, for example, which is where Wilkes Bar is, there's actually a 27,000 vote swing from 2012 to 2016. The turnout is pretty similar. It it seems very plausible to me that many of those are Democrats who are switching to Trump, for example. And that's not a case where greater get out the vote engagement by the Clinton campaign could have helped. Right. For, I think, Democratic strategy and like just going forward, there's a question of like, well, could we have swayed voters that voted for Trump? And also, could we have brought new voters in? I don't think we I think it's hard to know the answer to that to those questions. But I think there's a good reason to suspect that there were voters who had probably voted for Barack Obama once or twice, who did not vote for the Democratic candidate this time. And we can talk about the white working class and what the function of that word white is doing there. Um, I prefer to make the argument that Democrats as a party should appeal to the working class period and uh, not specifically to the white working class. But I think that if there is a chance that if you offer people kind of a positive vision of the economy that's also easily digestible, that they will bite on that. Because I think that was the strongest feature of the Trump campaign is that he was offering like a digestible message that you could go and tell people, but you could understand. And I think that message was like 
horrible in some ways, in many ways, maybe in all ways. But it was also, but it was also definitely like comprehensible in a way that I think the Clinton's campaign was just not. I agree with that to a certain extent, and and I want to importantly note that the number of voters who need to be won back is very small. Obama against Romney had 36% of the white working class vote. Mm -hmm. And that is obviously a very small number. Now, Trump improved on that. The Clinton campaign dropped maybe to 28% of whites without college degrees, what we colloquially call the white working class. But given that you're already winning such a minority share, I think you're completely right. This ideal that we appeal to just the white working class is is a loser. A working class politics has to be part of the Democratic Party movement going forward. But I think a attempt to try and beat the Republicans on their own ground of sort of an ect nationalism fused to working class or a Heronvolk social democracy is not going to work. Like Trump's already in that space and uh, we're going to be very unconvincing avatars of that. Right. And I, and I think that's just a terrible idea generally. Like, Oh, yeah. It's also like, morally bad. Right. It's right. morally bad, <laughs> which, which is kind of the first part. But actually, I mean, this is an interesting thing, right? There was this whole idea on the part of Clinton and some for surrogates like Chuck Schumer specifically who were saying that, well, we're going to like lose, you know, some fraction of the white working class, but we're going to win it back in the Republican suburbs. And what happened? Like none of that came true. Coming to Republicans and saying like, hey, like, you know, Donald Trump is real bad. You should vote for us. Like they actually don't seem to care. Like they don't, I don't think they can be one with that message because right. they're just going to vote for the Republicans. And, uh, and here's an important data point on that. Obama with the whites with college, 45%. Hillary Clinton, whites with college, 45%. Right. So Trump had some fall off, but basically it all went third party. And I completely agree with you. I think this idea that it was very clear, actually, some people who are whites with college degrees have a very strong affiliation to the cultural message of white supremacy that the Republicans have been selling for a while, and you're not going to win them. And frankly, given that Trump was also very allegiant to the tax cut idea, be purely selfish are also not going to be won over. I think it's a very, very small group of voters who were, in fact, statistically almost unidentifiable, who were so morally turned off by Trump that they decided to switch to Clinton. Unfortunately, it seems like that statistically unidentifiable portion of the Republican, every single one of them wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post or, was, right. or was at the Democratic National Convention. And, and none of that helped, right? right. Like, like literally 100% of everyone who switched in the country cut an ad for the DNC at some point. Yeah, and nobody was persuaded by like, David Frum in the Atlantic or something like. Although we love you, David Frum. I don't. I, I don't. But <laughs> <laughs> and even the people who are, you know, in those suburbs and who are not necessarily like whatever you can, you can ask whether they are like, you know, really firmly committed white supremacists or whether just, they'll just tolerate white supremacy for the tax cuts. Whatever, whatever the answer to that question is, like a lot of those people, like they don't necessarily have a like voters generally. They don't necessarily have a firm ideology, probably. But they're just like, well, Donald Trump probably won't screw me. If you screw somebody else, eh, like, I don't have too much attachment to those people. Like, they don't mean anything to me. And so you just get people who are like, okay, well, uh, I might get the tax cut out of this. And if a bunch of uh, minorities get hurt, well, you know, they don't seem to care very much about it. Completely agree. I mean, I think that there was this thesis in the election made both by the Clinton camp and also, I think, by even some people on the left that class was correlated with education and if trump automatically moved to secure the votes of people in without education that the base of the republican party whites with college degrees who make more than the median income would somehow switch over even with an appeal to their cosmopolitan virtues but there's a reason that people who are in the power structure right whether they're openly sort of white supremacist or just sort of like hey things are working for me my schools are good i don't have to worry about my kids being shot by police i benefit from tax cuts and i don't benefit from any targeted federal policy that's right right like if you make 80k a year guess what you're not on obamacare subsidies you you have mortgage breaks and when you retire you have social security and medicare but Otherwise, the welfare state doesn't really touch you. And there's just no reason to believe that these people would have gone to Clinton outside of sort of pure vir- virtue politics. Right. I, it's, it's, it's very interesting, actually. There's this uh, book that I, I don't know that we've talked about it that would be good to discuss at some point. It's uh, by a political scientist at Cornell by the name of Suzanne Mettler, and it's called The Submerged State. And it's a 
book that's all about how people benefit from uh, the federal government without re- realizing that they're doing so. So it's but but it is interesting that you know we do have this kind of gap when it comes to social policy and like who benefits. You have people at the very bottom who are sort of eligible for all kinds of like subsidies and uh, Medicaid and Medicare uh, when when they're seniors and so on and so forth. Right. So those are the people who are kind of the least politically empowered, but they are also kind of, they are at least marginally subsidized by a social safety net. And then you have people at the very top who have this, you know, who just don't need, they don't need the subsidies, but they also benefit if they're, if they run, they benefit from the tax code, they benefit from, if they run companies, they benefit from various uh, industrial policies, industrial policies, right. So those people kind of like, have a vested interest in controlling what the federal government is doing. But then you have this big middle that actually, you know, they benefit, but they benefit in ways that are not obvious, right? They benefit in ways that are unseen and don't necessarily like nobody's coming to you when you're making 80,000 as a household and saying like, here's like, I don't know, whatever, here's your health care or something like that. And so when those people, when they're confronted with the question of, well, how is this, what is this going to do for me? Their answer is, I think, incorrectly, but still their answer, understandably in some ways, is that like they, it's nothing, right? I don't get anything from this, even though, I mean, they in fact do, but the voters don't get into the complicated questions of like evaluating policy. They're just like, they look around them and they're like, uh, I don't know, I'm not getting anything from the current regime. Might try something else. Maybe those guys will do something for me. So. I, I think that's right. And that's also, I think it's both a good segue, actually, to the Matt Stoller article. Yeah. Um, because I think Wright-Patman was very much about providing particular benefits and pointing them out to people. But I, I want to say one thing first, which is, I think the early Hotchild book, uh, Strangers in Their Own Land, which I hated, <laughs> uh, is actually a very good, the, the analytic part of it is, I think, very good on this, because... You know, she says there's this sort of deep narrative that people have. And the deep narrative is basically about a line uh, where eventually you make it. And the people she's interviewed who are all upper middle class but suffering from environmental deprivation in Louisiana and who are all very committed Republicans view themselves as being cut in line for many of the reasons you just said in the submerged state axis. They, they don't see any of the benefits that apply to them. When they do see government, they see it as ineffectual or benefiting particularly African-Americans. By the way, the reason I think the book is bad is because I think there's no moral judgment that she applies to people who are, at base, white supremacists. And I, I think that there's something problematic about treating adults, especially adults who make more than the median income, as if they're incapable of learning. So, but the analytic point is good, and I think it's exa- exactly that. And I think that's also my problem with this Matt Stoller article, because, you know, it's a it's a great article if segregation didn't exist, or it's a great article if the New Deal had never made any compromises around race. But it sort of pretends, I think, that these Watergate babies came in and ruined everything about a system that had given us Jim Crow, the lack of extension of Social Security to blacks and agricultural workers, closed union shops that didn't let African Americans work in unions, that prevented chain stores from coming in, again, allowing local stores, which were segregationist, to to operate. I don't even know if the article mentions race other than sort of a throw aside later where it says, boy, in the mid 90s, a majority of Americans still opposed interracial marriage. So liberalism's come a long way. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, for those of our listeners who have not done the reading on which there will be a quiz later, um, <laughs> I'll just summarize the, the, this Matt Stoller piece in The Atlantic. The basic idea that Stoller sort of puts forth is that around the time that Watergate happened, or rather right after Watergate happened, a new class of congressmen, by class I mean like school class, not like social class, of congressmen was elected and they came in and they sort of revolutionized the system that had existed before them. And sort of one of the deans of this old system was Wright Patman, uh, namesake of the Patman-Robinson Act and various uh, other various other New Deal efforts. Jerry, uh, what did the Patman-Robinson Act do? It was a federal law that prohibited price discrimination, and its goal was to essentially give small local stores a leg up on large nationwide chains. So that was that was the idea of the uh, Robinson-Patman Act. 
But anyway, Wright Patman was the kind of the, one of the deans of this um, of this system, and he occupied a particularly influential place. On he was the chair of which committee was he chair of? I believe he was chair of the U.S. House Committee on Banking and Currency. All right, yeah. So he was the chair of the Banking and Currency Committee. And Wright Patman was obviously kind of like this figure of his time, right? He, on the one hand, he was a new dealer, so he was very much sort of an economic populist. But then on the other hand, he was also an ardent segregationist. He signed the Segregationist Manifesto in 1956 and, you know, a Southerner. So very much a man of that time and place specifically. And the claim made by Stollers that these Watergate babies, as he calls them, possibly somebody else calls them, uh, came in and decided that Wright Patman had to go. And they orchestrated a, a coup, I guess you could call it, or rather they orchestrated a vote that ousted him from his chairmanship on the committee. And this is the root of all of our current problems. And this is where like neoliberalism went off the rails. That, so that's kind of the idea. And once Patman had been ousted, what that allowed the new chairman of the, the committee and the Democrats in particular, who were sympathetic to this kind of like emerging liberalism on economic matters to do was to sort of restructure what U.S. antitrust policy was going to be like and the priorities and so on. And so uh, Stoller's article is called How the Democrats Killed Their Populist Soul. Yeah. And look, I think there are some appealing parts to this story. I think that it's weird to attack Carter for deregulation since Carter gave us microbrews. Um, beer used to be regulated. and and But more realistically, he attacks him on transportation dereg, which is absurd because actually U.S. freight uh, is a very widespread industry that has incredibly cheap shipping costs. It is much cheaper now to fly than it used to be, although there has been increasing concentration. You know, I'm not agreeing with, with every point in his, and I think his overall narrative is unfortunately bereft of the sort of social fabric that would need to tie it together. He makes villains of people who were fighting an unjust war in Vietnam, who were fighting against um, truly sort of the worst of hard hat uh, democratic politics that were okay with things like Kent State, that were okay with racial segregation, as you note. Patman himself signed that bill. But I do think there's something here about corporate just, power. Just to be Sorry. clear, it wasn't, it wasn't a bill. It was like a declaration of sentiments, essentially. That was uh, su- the Southern Manifesto of 1956. It was like the Southern Democrats, mostly, uh, expression of like animus towards Brown v. Board specifically, but also just the whole integrationist program generally. Got it. So it couldn't even be uh, signed off on some political compromise. It was just a pure expression. Yeah, of Yeah, it was animus. like, we hate black people. That's what it said. Well, there you go. So the, the hero of this piece, ladies and gents. But, but seriously, uh, th- there is a part of it that I want to defend, because I think that probably everyone, uh, even for me, the most ardent neoliberal, uh, certainly all the way to the Jacobin set, agrees that the Democratic Party needs to move left in an economic way. And, you know, I think there's something to the idea of the concentration of economic power and especially some of the arguments around antitrust where you saw even the Clinton camp with the Roosevelt Institute and other sort of policy campaigns saying that they were going to make corporate concentration a a big part of what they were going to focus on were there to have been a Clinton administration. So actually, antitrust is very interesting because there's a funny, although more like funny makes you want to cry article by Richard Hofstadter, he of the... Um, politics is Paranoid Style? Th- yeah, the Paranoid Style in American Politics, right? Sorry. Uh, thank you for re- reminding me. I was trying to process the uh, the name. Uh, but he also wrote this article that basically said, I think the, the title of the article was like, what happened to the American antitrust effort or something like that. And uh, his conclusion was that it has disappeared because it has been so successful. And I think he wrote this in like 1968 or something. I mean, he died in 74 so or 72, I think. So it had to be have been in the late 60s. So, I mean, the great irony, of course, is that the legal philosophy of antitrust as sort of being consumer-oriented rather than producer-oriented has essentially triumphed over the last 40 years. And American antitrust almost, in some ways, almost doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) Right. Although I think it's interesting that some of the things that Stoller defends and tries to wrap into this are things like milk pricing boards. So there's this very clear sort of, I think, confusion of a concentration of corporate power, which allows certain types of corruption and even, frankly, danger, because I think that the points about financial deregulation, um, by the way, Trump will repeal Dodd-Frank, and yes, that will be bad for most of his voters. It's going to be real bad. It's going to be terrible. Um, I think that's a good point. And yet at the same time, I think there's also this allegiance to sort of what I'll call old Democrat 70s-style command economy type policies, which seems very confusing to me, which I don't think should be part of the story going forward. And frankly, I don't even see appealing to anyone. Right. So I think there's 
there's sort of two things that ha- that are happening in this Stoller piece that are kind of elided over because he's spending a lot of time telling the story of Wright Patman and such. What happens, right, he, he kind of glosses over the civil rights movement in Vietnam, in Vietnam. And I think that's sort of a mistake because one of the things that it's not so much that he makes Wright Patman his hero, although he does, and the other people, the villains, although there's a little bit of that. Pete but, Stark on his bank. Right. Um, but it's but it's more that he doesn't really look into the motivations of like, what were these people doing at the time, right? It's just kind of like, it makes it sound like, you know, Wright Patman was this like genial uncle. He was a little bit racist, like your genial uncle. But, uh, you know, these kids just came in and they kicked him out. So one thing to note is that Wright Patman died in 1976. So it's not likely that he was going to, it's not like he was going to hold on to that chairmanship for the next uh, 20 years or something like that. Somebody was going to replace him, if not that year, then the year after or the year after that. And there's plenty of, uh, look, I don't want to knock Wright Patman because it's possible that Wright Patman would have transitioned of course, to regret his segregationist past. Some Democrats did. But importantly, like others who started out as Democrats and did not regret their secessionist past and perfectly transitioned over to the Republican Party, it's also quite possible that what would have went are his bona fides on economic movements and legislation. That's right. As That's many a story those, that we saw many times. Exactly. And and it's which when push came to shove, actually, segregation and voter suppression remained over things like protecting cotton tenant farmers. Right. But I think that Stoller's article really understates the extent to which the civil rights movement, the intersection of the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War was this major social rupture. And all of a sudden you had a party that was extremely like pro-Vietnam War and mostly anti-integration. And then you had this Democratic Party that was transforming itself into the party that was committed to protecting civil rights. And, you know, went into a schism over Vietnam. That's 1968. But once that commitment had happened, once, you know, McGovern had been the not the anti-war nominee and once the Democrats were like, oh, we're actually going to we're serious about the civil rights thing. Once that happened, it's not clear to me how they could have sustained an alliance with somebody like Wright Patman or anybody else who came after him who shared his potentially like retrograde views, right? So, so I, I agree with you, but let me throw a counter argument because I, I think I agree that in fact, they weren't Reagan Democrats, they were Nixon Democrats, and they basically stayed Republican voters for the next 40 years. But there's a counter argument that says, and I think Stoller makes it in the article, Patman was able to campaign on a list of things that we did for y'all. Farm bill, That's rural right. electrification, telephones. It's a beautiful list in the article if you go. So I guess the question is, if you could present people basically with a bill of sale, and maybe this speaks to the submerged state point, if it's possible to unsubmerge the state, I mean, I, I'm actually very skeptical of this argument, although I think some of it has to be done, because as we just said, the you know college-educated Republican bourgeois is not coming home. But it seems like this is sort of how much you do of this and how visible you can make it, how reachable are some of these people? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, just to read off the list that uh, shows up in the article, uh, Wright Patman would campaign with these flyers and they say, here's what our Democratic Party has given us, rural electrification and telephones, farm to market roads, social security with sub bullet points, child welfare, unemployment insurance, old age benefits, uh, and then farm legislation with like a whole bunch of other sub points that, you know, were presumably good. So there's something to that. I think that you you really do have to kind of make a positive case. It's very I think it's it's very hard when you're like when people ask you, I'm going to derail into like an anecdote. Right. So for so, for example, like I read a lot of political articles. I read a lot a fair amount of policy articles. I read Vox. I listen to their podcasts. And in particular, they have a reporter, Sarah Cliff, who does a lot of reporting on Obamacare. I am not a healthcare expert, but I do listen to the podcast. I read her articles. And like, I'm an educated person with like, you know, multiple advanced degrees. And I have like really deep problems, even when she's writing about it, like really understanding what she's saying, not because she's bad at explaining it, but because like the complexity of the program is so huge, right? It's like if if you are a at 138 percent of FPL, you no longer are eligible just, for Medicaid expansion. I, my eyes glaze over, right. and I am like kind of the natural audience for this yep. in some ways. So, you know, if if what you're campaigning on is like these really these tiered benefits that you have to fill out like 50 forms for, like 
it's just it just doesn't like hit people like emotionally. Like nobody's going to go to the mat to defend this because people go to the mat to defend like actual benefits. Like this did something for me. This kept me alive. This gave me uh, healthcare. This, uh, you know, allowed me to whatever in this particular case, like this gave me electricity. Those are like tangible things that people will fight to defend. And to the extent that you saw people doing that in the 2016 elections and especially in, um, the campaign literature and all that stuff. It was like people emphasizing tangible benefits. But then if you are not one of the people receiving the tangible benefits because you fall into like whatever the wrong category or something like that, all that's just like meaningless to you. You're right. And this is the insufficiency of rhetoric too. I mean, Clinton did not win Flint in the areas around it by an amazing amount. And I heard some questioning as to why Um Folks are still getting bottled water in Flint. That's right. Like, you know, I'm not sure that if my child had been exposed to potentially severely damaging levels of lead and nothing had changed at all, that I would be super inclined to vote for admittedly the person who seemed to care about me, but again, had affected no change. Right. There's a lot of things that the, these this campaign didn't talk about because we were so busy talking about like what a terrible human being Trump was, which I sort of, you know, by the by, I think is it was a tactical mistake. But although uh, true. Although obviously true, right? I mean, he's obviously terrible. But also, things like Flint, right? It's it's like you have a this situation where the government just kind of threw up its hands and was like, eh, fuck it. Like, we're going to just let these people drink leaded water. Um, and so if you care about that, right, which I think, like, Democrats generally do. Like, I don't think it's an act that they to, that they put on. But when you care about that, what you have to come in and say is that we're going to make it so that there is no leaded water. We're going to create like a program so that we clean the shit up and you don't have to drink poison. And this is where I think the hot child book actually falls down in Louisiana because her quote keyhole paradox, the, the one she wants to look through and understand why these people who are suffering from environmental degradation so much are Tea Party Republicans who hate the EPA is sort of exactly that, that environmental degradation. Why, why does this exist? And it exists because they see no government change. If the EPA had functionally cleaned up their bayou, maybe some Democrat could run on an argument of, look what the EPA can do. But instead, they live with this degradation. They see, in fact, failures of environmental regulation. And then, of course, they they believe in, in an ineffective government that's giving to other people. They've seen no tangible progress. And um, look, maybe that means it's an impossible situation for Louisiana because you can't fight the state. But especially Bobby Jindal, who, of course, gives away, I think, over the course of the last years of his administration, gave away something like $1.6 billion of Louisiana state government to oil companies. Yeah, the, the Jindal administration is like a great preview for what we're going to be living on at the federal level for the next four years. Right. A massive corporate subsidy, huge uh, deficits uh, produced by that corporate subsidy, no increase in employment, uh, and hopefully a Democrat to clean it all up at the end. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think there's sort of a exactly this problem of, well, if you don't actually have a visible impact, uh, what do you do? So we've been talking a lot about Flint. And I think that the natural sort of reverse of the question of why did Hillary Clinton not get as much support out of uh, communities like Flint is how did Trump mobilize a lot of white voters who may have, in fact, voted for Barack Obama to against Hillary on, on frankly, pretty naked racial animus. Like, what was it that was successful about his appeal that was not successful when, when, as many people have noted, you know, they voted for our first African-American president? Yeah, so this is, this touches on uh, the second article that um, we've been kicking around here and and discussing, which is uh, this piece by Rembert Brown in uh, New York Magazine about how Trump has made hate intersectional. And the basic thesis of Brown's uh, article is that what Trump had done is that he had taken all these different elements that had previously sort of, uh, they they had been part of the Republican political motivation strategy, but he really fused them into an extremely potent force. And in particular, that was a it was a potent force that appealed very strongly to a particular segment of society, uh, specifically, you know, white people of uh, slightly above median income living in Rust Belt states. I think there's a great thing about this article, which is it's sort of the reverse of the famous Lee Atwater quote. You know, Lee Atwater basically had Lee Atwater, for those of you who don't know, was a st- Republican strategist 
who had a deathbed confession, basically, oh, I'm such a terrible person in the early 90s, um, who sort of pioneered a lot of dog whistling uh, ads that played on people's racial anxieties. And his famous quote was roughly that you don't need to say the N-word because people still hear the N-word when you operate in a certain way. You can read the quote online. It's more eloquent because he was a political consultant. But in a funny way, Trump is the complete reverse of that. Trump Trump says, no, I'm going to amplify this around a message that, in fact, Republicans haven't been hitting as hard. And this sort of version that has been extant within Republican politics, but certainly not at the national level, at the national level actually actively avoided by people like Mitt Romney and George George W. Bush and, and John McCain, is going to be really powerful because people are going to be like, oh, I hear the song again. They still believe it. I, I guess one of the I wish I could take credit for this, but I read it somewhere else, which is that, you know, Trump made the subtext into just plain old text. Right. That's that's what really happened is that he took all the stuff that used to be sub Rosa and he he turned it into the core of the campaign. And then it turned out that everybody who was kind of like who had some cultural grievance against a modern cosmopolitan America, like for what, some of those grievances may have been economically legitimate and some of those grievances were just like uh, black people can vote now that's bad they were mobilized under that slogan right make america great again well great again for whom right well, it you turns have to out be- for the people for whom it was great 30 years ago when all these subaltern categories of citizen were substantially more subaltern. Yeah, I think that's completely right. And I think that's particularly true. You look at white college educated women and, you know, white college educated women are not monolithic. And I think there's this idea in part because we were talking about the white working class and we were talking about the ways that class is definitely correlated with education. But, you know, you saw a very large split there. There were many white college educated women who voted for Trump. And is that some lack of solidarity? No, I think it's a solidarity to cultural affinities for exactly what you're talking about. You know, did I have a vision of the world, a a narrative that has been displaced by others? Did I have a protective narrative towards certain aspects of misogyny? Um, There was a piece in Vox that, that, that touched on different types of misogyny that might be active. But do I feel like I am part of this emerging cosmopolitan majority or not. And I think, you know, a college-educated person, in again, in Luzerne County, in Wilkes-Barre, may be very different than one in Darien, Connecticut, in terms of their connection to the cultural modes of cosmopolitanists, in terms of their actually connection to immigrants, to non-whites. And there was a point that you were bringing up before the podcast that I think is very right, that a lot of this fear of the other, terrorism, xenophobia, immigrants, etc., is is said by people in counties that actually have very few immigrants. You know, immigrants don't tend to move to Rust Belt counties where there aren't jobs. Um, these counties are predominantly white. So it, it's it's very much a fear of the other that Trump was able to mobilize. Right. And some of that is the kind of the availability heuristic, right? If you see just, I mean, I grew up in, we both grew up in Southern California, fairly diverse area, lots of uh, Latino, like large Latino population, obviously. And so when you are shoulder to shoulder with people like you know, who are different from you every single day, then seeing people who are different from you is not that weird. But when you are in a 95% white county and all of a sudden you see one Mexican laborer, like it doesn't even matter is that person whether that person is here legally, illegally, they are so much more salient to you because they stand out against the background of like a completely white society. So it's interesting because, right, there's this great irony, and this is sort of the irony of Brexit as well, which is that the people who were like most ardently for Brexit were people who had like seen one Polish immigrant in their entire lives. Right. And the people who were most ardently for Trump were the people who are ensconced in these, you know, it's I'm going to use the word bubble because liberals have been admonished for not, you know, for living in our coastal elite bubbles. But really, you know, these areas that are you know, these low population counties out in like the Dakotas or something like that, like those are bubbles too, right? right? They don't, or places where diversity is presented really, I mean, very segregated communities, segregated schools, segregated areas. If you look at Dayton, for example, um, unfortunately I forget uh, the guy's name, but he used to be an editor at the New Republic and he's been writing a series on Dayton, Ohio. And the sociologist Robert Putnam talked about the way that diversity can increase social tension. And it can, but it can very specifically in areas where there's not real integration. So if you have the presence of 
diversity, but it's not the type of diversity that you and I experienced growing up, where you get to know people as people and you interact with them in school and in your daily life and in work. But instead, it's a type where you have very prescribed interactions and very geographically segregated populations, then it, it is, again, easier to maintain, I think, this fiction of the other. I think the Rembert Brown piece is really good in a way that analysis pieces aren't usually good because he is a black man writing about a campaign which to such a great degree was based on uh, racism and exclusion. Uh, And he writes about it in an extremely moving way. So I would recommend that people read it, not because I think that it necessarily encompasses everything there is to know about the 2016 presidential election, but because it's just such a really concise statement that, you know, clearly comes from a place of, like, this is a person who feels it in his bones. Uh, So I think everybody should do themselves a favor and take five minutes to read this piece. Agreed. Even if you're sick of postmortems, it's one of the elegies, I think, for a type of America that that got rejected that, that is very worthwhile. So, Jerry, reader question. All right, reader question. This is a surprise for me because I haven't actually looked at it yet. Fair enough. This is from Cassie. Cassie asks, basically, what good can come out of this? We're all primed for Armageddon, but is there sort of a silver lining? And I think my quick answer would be no. But but I want to maybe take this in two different tacks. I, I think there is a piece about what does productive activism look like? And maybe we could try and figure out if there's any policy that actually could come out of the next four years that's reasonable. Again, my short answer is no, let's not collaborate. But but I, I'm willing to be knocked off that. Yeah. So there's two ways of answering that question, right? There's a, one way, which, which we'll also get to, I think, which is what can we do? But there's sort of like a prognostication, like what is the next four years going to look like? And ironically enough, my model for understanding our present, our near future is, I think, appropriately enough, Russia, right? So there's been all this talk about how Putin and and Trump have this affinity, whatever. I'm not going to get into the question of, like, whether they're in cahoots or something like that. I don't know that that's a productive... uh, I don't know that we know anything specific about that. But I think that the example of how the Russian state operates is actually really instructive. And there was a good piece by... Masha Gessen in the uh, New York Review of Books that sort of tried to summarize that into like rules for what to expect. But my answer is that what we should expect is something that looks like kind of looter capitalism, that a lot of the resources of the nation state are going to be siphoned off by private parties for their own profits. Some of it is going to be like open stuff like voter suppression. Like those are things I think that people expect. But there are a lot of things that are going to look like the same kind of things that Clinton was dinged on for, you know, the foundation stuff, except that it's already happening. I mean, like Trump has already met with Indian businessmen who have pledged to stay at his hotels. And Trump didn't just do it. But importantly, the people running his blind trust, that's right, not a blind trust, i.e. his children. Uh, were in the meeting with him. And so this is what like this is what it looks like. It's that all these different norms and protections that we expect to insulate the public office from private profit are going to be unraveled. Um, and that is in some ways a disaster, I think that is it's different. I don't know how it, how it measures up in scale, but it's a different kind of disaster than the disaster of things like voter suppression, because those things, I think, are, again, very salient things that you can turn people out to oppose, whereas uh, this kind of shit is like, it just all happens behind the scenes in a way that is very hard to process until it's actually happened. And this is what happened in Russia, right? When in the late 90s, all these and mid to late 90s, all these people emerged who had all this money. The question became, well, how did they get this money? And the answer was that they had access to various informal channels uh, that allowed them to, for example, buy national resources at a substantially reduced cost and essentially turn those into a monopoly. Like those are the kinds of things that don't get a lot of people animated. But they're also kind of because of that, they tend to be a huge danger. So that is my unhappy prognosis for what we can expect outside of the obvious. I think that's fair. And and I think that the analogy here is not to the authoritarianism of the 30s, but it's to the type of state authoritarianism pioneered in a lot of emerging market countries. So 
it is true that if there are internment camps, like the ones that locked up my grandparents, I, I really believe that there will be civil revolt. But I think that if there's a type of widespread theft that you saw from, you know, Sukarno in Indonesia, or the Chinese before Xi, or, you know, under under the Deng era, or, you know, in, in Russia, as you just noted, where it seems like, you know, every fifth person now owns a British soccer team because of taking over a, a, a various Russian natural resource. I think those are much harder to protest, and they are much harder to animate people over, and we're not going to see any of it. There's simply no evidence to me that let alone the Democratic uh, minority in Congress, but the Republican majority are going to do the type of investigations required um, to reveal the financial dealings of the Trump enterprises. And it doesn't just have to be the Trumps. They can, of course, give deals to their friends. Um, you exactly noted it's it's perhaps why Clinton was one of the worst candidates to run against Trump. But the type of deals being done for the foundation, which, again, pays for AIDS medication for the poor, those type of deals instead being funneled directly to um, Trump friends and family, and and not even direct deals. It could be on regulate regulatory issues or antitrust issues. Oh, like absolutely. The entire yeah. apparatus of the state can be easily mobilized to make decisions for and against uh, Trump corporate friends or opponents. And and this was a point made in like a Vox article I think that I read some time ago about how the regulatory power of the state is really what is going to come down on, for example, non-compliant companies or something like that like that's what they can make things difficult for you because the machinery is there but if you put bad people in charge of it they're going to abuse it right and i think ezra klein has been very good on this and yeah maybe and, it was klein and i i don't know that we'll see the extent to which uh, russians have used the tax authorities to actually imprison people that they don't like but easily you could see regulatory decisions being made I, i'm sure that for example jeff bezos is already uh worried given the washington post key opposition to trump and I guess now, now sort of you, you turn to the question of like, what can you really do about that? So I'll let you take a stab at that one. Well, I mean, other than listening to a podcast or turning into a dumpster fire yourself, I think there's a type of activism which is self-care and there's a type of activism which is forward. So I would say the activism which is self-care is actually one that many of us are doing, calling our senators and reminding them what our political positions are. Even if that's ineffectual, I think that there are moments where you commit yourself not to normalize that are healthy. Because I think the next four years, again, unless there are internment camps, in which case I, I sort of predict mass revolt, I think over the next four years, there will be a, a great human desire to retune ourselves to this as normal. And I think that there's a tremendous amount of self-care in a continuous amount of reminding ourselves that this is not normal and making sure our elected officials actually don't collaborate with someone who's trying to ruin norms. In terms of the second type of activism, I'm a little hopeful about efforts that can unite local communities with national progressive organizations. So I think that there are national organizations that will commit to the fight against Trump through the courts, which I think will probably be the the last and best place to fight Trump, because even the Republican appointees, I think, care about rule of law uh, to a large extent, on the at least at the district and circuit level. Well, we'll find out. Right. Uh, Jerry is probably more pessimistic about this <laughs> than I am. But I think that there are a lot of, you know, if you are a Muslim community, um, you know, in Minnesota, um, if you are a immigrant community in, in the Southwest, I, I am optimistic, actually, about building new channels of organization that tie those in to national support and that focus on local communities. Because I think that some of the worst deprivations, actually, there's a the corruption that'll be at the federal level from the Trumps. But I think Trump has empowered a lot of state and local people. I think there Absolutely. will be a thousand more Joe Arpaios. Oh, yeah. And so if there is a silver lining in terms of activism, I think that people are really going to be motivated to nationalize that. Joe Arpaio should have been a national concern. Because treating Latinos in that way is just a violation of everything that means to be American. That should have just been an Arizona concern. And I think that as you have these sort of state and local brown shirts get validated by the Trump movement, not just to put graffiti in our local parks, but actually to use their their power as local officials and mayors and sheriffs to do things. Uh, you know, I, I really think that, that if there is a national organizing movement, I, I think it has to be directed around things like that. Yeah, I would agree. I think that absolutely there has to be some kind of nationalization of this problem. Like you can't leave communities to fight this alone. And so every activist community, I think, has to be prepared to say, to like, if you find something, if you see something, say something, right? If something happens, right, whether it's graffiti or whether it's actual physical violence, whether it's legislation that is uh, intended to 
restrict the franchise in some way or whatever. Like all those things need to be made national because in the inversion of Tip O'Neill's famous dictum, everything, all politics is national now. Um, it's going to be really important for communities, especially in places where, that are, that are um, economically not powerful to be able to draw on support from places like California and New York, just in terms of money and and any kind of organizational heft that the coasts can expend. Because this is going to have to be a project where we are all allies, right? Yeah. <laughs> allies in like a very, very direct sense. And I think to this, I mean, look, there is a leader of the party. It's not going to be Keith Ellison. In, in February, it's going to be Barack Obama. And I think that Barack Obama's post-presidency may be different than the one he and Michelle wanted. But I think that, as you just noted, all politics is national. And there, I he had wanted with Holder to work on national redistricting, a sort of blue map version of the red map plan that, mm-hmm. that was very successful in 2010. I think that it's going to extend further because I think he's going to be a locus of the opposition. Um, he is the most prominent Democratic figure. And more than that, his personal story validates everything about, I think, the the left liberal narrative that is worth defending. I have to say that I'm a little bit concerned about that scenario. And my concern with that is the same concern that I think has proven to be correct since 2008, which is that Barack Obama is a singular figure in American politics. And you can build a movement around a singular figure, but it actually has to be able to operate without it. And this is kind of what happened in 2008, where he came in and there was this, you know, I mean, it was a huge Democratic wave, not just at the federal level, but at the state level, too. I mean, Democrats held something like over 60 percent of elected state legislature seats in after 2008. And all of that has evaporated. So it's good that if he can act as a locus for activism and for just opposition to Trump, but it's also important to remember that so much of this stuff is just like Barack Obama's one human being. He can't be everywhere at once. He can be nationally prominent, but at the same time, there are going to be many, many local issues that inherit this kind of like, you know, they're going to be taking place against the background of this national problem. Right. And so one thing that is super important is not just to organize activists, but actually to organize people who can win electoral power, because at the end of the day, like you need access to the machinery of power. And if you don't have that access, it's really, really hard. You you know, if you want to see a blue Arizona or a blue Texas or a blue Pennsylvania again. You need to have people on the ground who are not just going to be activists, but also are going to run for office. And they need to run for office. And this is this is my like personal convictions. You need people who are running for office at every level. And it doesn't matter like whether you are a great candidate or whether you're just kind of like a so-so candidate, because in a lot of places, like Democrats didn't even put people on the ballot. So the strategy from the, at the level of the national party has to be, hey, we're going to try to recruit as many of you to go out there and be good candidates, deliver our message, and just compete. You have to compete because if you don't compete, like you, you've seeded the field to like all the worst people. I don't disagree with that at all. I, I guess I would just say a couple of things. I think that redemption might have happened had Lincoln been alive, but I'm just saying... <laughs> that I want to run trying Reconstruction with Lincoln, because we got him. And I hear your point. It's a national movement. You need to run candidates at the local level. Russ Feingold underperformed Clinton in Wisconsin. Yeah, I, I wish I knew more about that election, because I just really know nothing at all about I also do, there. for what it's worth, uh, pod listeners, my, my wife is convinced that I'm wrong, and, and Russ Feingold no longer holds such a special place in Wisconsin Democrats' heart. But if I'm not wrong, you're absolutely right about competing at every local office, but I do think that mobilization still has to come with some national leadership. Yeah, actually, I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with that because it seemed to me that, you know, if we were doing this a year ago, we'd be talking and people were talking about what a crisis of leadership there is in the Republican Party. Like there wasn't there was no one person who you were you would look at and you'd be like, yeah, this this guy or this woman there. There are like we're going to ride them all the way to the White House. Am I the last believer in Marco Rubio? 
<laughs> I mean, Mark, Marco Rubio won 48% of Hispanic votes in Florida. Yeah, I mean, may, maybe you are. I, I think, I don't know if Marco Rubio benefits from, like, being ensconced in Florida and not being exposed on a national stage. Like, my overwhelming impression of Marco Rubio is that he's really fucking dumb. <laughs> so, uh, I don't... Not a... Not, not a blocker not to take you the blocker, presidency. But, but here's what's interesting, right? Like, Donald Trump, also really fucking dumb. But, but, the difference is that... He was so, like, vituperative that he just took all of those con- considerations about, like, well, is this guy, like, do his policies make sense? Like, all that went away because people were just like, oh, my God, Donald Trump said a crazy thing. Marco Rubio is, like, he's dumb, but he's also not crazy. And I think he would have, like, in some ways a hard time with having, like, actual debates with people. Because if he got challenged, like, you could just see, like, he would get challenged and he'd be just like, I don't know. I mean, I give you W, who I think had a fairly similar resume and skill set to Marco Rubio. Yeah, but, I mean, but but again, like it, the question was like, did anybody want him as the leader? And, and W the went to Andover. No. Rubio, mm. like nobody wanted him. That's the problem, right? Everybody, it turns out that all of these, all of these things, right, that the Republicans like really wanted to sell people on, like nobody wanted that. They just like they wanted the the raw unadulterated like so so why were they why if their ideological platform was not attractive which i think is arguably correct and they didn't have any leaders why were they so good at taking state legislative races governor's races senatorial races is it because democrats just literally didn't show up so i think there's like two factors here i think part of it is that in a lot of places like democrats did not show up because they didn't think they would win for obvious reasons of concentration of voters this works out badly for Democrats in a way that it doesn't work out badly for Republicans because their voters are geographically dispersed and ours are geographically concentrated. So if nobody shows up to contest Chuck Schumer's seat, which might as well not have happened, although there technically Wendy was. Wendy Long. Wendy Long. Technically, God she was her. on the ballot. She got like 20% of the vote or something. You know, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if nobody shows up to contest that that's a senatorial seat. So that's a little bit different, but like, okay, you say something like Nitty of Alaska is my Congresswoman or, you know, Carolyn Maloney, my Congresswoman. So nobody shows up to contest their seats. Like it doesn't matter because that's just one seat. But if nobody shows up to contest a whole bunch of seats that are held by Republicans, that's a real disaster. And, but the second part of it too, is that there is a decoupling, I think of what's happening at the national level in terms of like what people will vote for. Because again, this is, this is probably a good subject for another, for another pod where we talk about like what voters actually believe. Nothing. Nothing. That's right. Voters are nihilist, man. It's, it's the worst. Well, but, uh, they're certainly not rational. Well, they, they believe, they believe something, but it's not clear what, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit like the phenomenon where people say like, hate Congress, but they reelect their congressperson. Uh, I think it's kind of the same thing. It's like, well, they might hate the National Republican Party or they might have like negative opinions of it or whatever. But then there's like this real one concrete dude that like is out there shaking hands in your district. And you're like, oh, that guy's OK. Like you vote for him. So I don't think it's that like because the ideology is so attractive that they won these seats. It's just because they had a lot of people out there just saying things over and over again and competing in actually competitive regions well we, we actually disagree on this point but i think that's actually is a good topic for another pod is it nihilism about government that makes republicanism sort of a self-perpetuating vicious circle argument or is it the <laughs> presence of state legislators in republican districts that's right yeah but but i but i think also like as just to uh, circle back to the question of like what can be done i think I think that in line with this notion that we shouldn't normalize what's happening, I think it's really important to keep the pressure on whoever represents you, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, to not accept this as normal, to not collaborate. uh, And I use that word sort of with the full understanding of what exactly it implies with what could essentially end up being kind of a, a like a lawless regime that does whatever it wants. So, you know, and that is signaled through the appointments of Bannon and Sessions and Flynn. Oh, yeah, that it, it is exactly who it said it was going to be. Absolutely. And it has no interest in concessions to American unity or polity or, frankly, people who are not white Christians. Yeah. And, and the, the situation of the Democrats at the national level uh, is such that the things that are going to happen are going to happen with 
over your objections. Like if they if the Republicans really want to do something terrible in the next two years, like they will do it. Guys, get familiar with reconciliation, because even if the filibuster doesn't go, it's going to suck. That's right. That's right. And so they're they're going to do it. And so you really don't benefit from taking a hand in this. Like you don't need you don't need to be part of this machinery that's going to like fuck everything up right like you can Schumer, oppose it you don't need your hands on the tax cut to contractors infrastructure bill absolutely not you're only going to be remembered poorly in history for doing so yeah that's right so so i think that um i think there just has to be a unified opposition like that is one of the most key aspects of of our political life going forward this is fine popular front that's right. <laughs> um, i want to thank our engineer greg young for volunteering his time in studio Thank you, Greg. And thank our listeners. Thank you. And we hope to be back. How, when, when, when should we say we'll be back? Let's say bi-weekly. 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 So that's the plan. We hope you enjoyed uh, this program. And we hope that you will listen to us in the future. And have a good Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.